produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. On this edition of the program, we find out how brands can change, grow and keep their loyal customers. We did our homework. We did the research. We wanted to understand what were the issues facing the world today and how could we contribute to those. I think people really understood that it was time for us to pioneer again. We talked to some brand experts about the labels they love and why. They're so true to who they are and what they stand for. You know, what they used to be back in the 70s when they first started is, is kind of very true to what they are at the moment. And we learn about a brand based on the humble mushroom with a celebrity fan base. The next time I got to catch up with him, I showed him our first version of Fable and it, he ended up becoming our first fine dining customer. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next? Tom's Shoes is a brand that built its reputation on the one-for-one giving model. You buy a pair of shoes and a pair is given by the company to someone in need. But recently, the company has courageously shifted away from this strategy and has done so successfully, maintaining its loyal customers. To find out more about the Tom's evolution, I spoke to Chief Strategy and Impact Officer Amy Smith, she joined me from her office in Los Angeles. Amy Smith, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, we're talking about Tom's, the brand. It was founded in 2006. It's now 15 years later. How has the company changed over time? Yeah, such a great question. There has certainly been a lot of changes over that 15 years. You know, the one thing that I always like to share right up front because it's so core to who we are, so core to our DNA, is the one thing that has never changed is our mission. And that is that we're in the business to improve lives. That is what the entire company wakes up to do every day, no matter if you work in finance or in impact or in HR. And so I think that that's something really important to highlight when you're talking about purpose-driven brands. But certainly uh, a lot over 15 years has changed. We started as a one-for-one shoe-giving company, which means when someone buys a pair of shoes, we gave a pair of shoes to someone in need around the globe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was, for several years, kind of the idea. And that, of course, has uh, become the norm for many purpose-driven companies. We're so proud to be a part of that and inspire that in so many other companies. But as we grew, we added new categories, we added new products, we added new ones, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Everything from site giving to maternal health to um, anti-bullying work, uh, all in a one-for-one model. And uh, over that time, we added a professional giving team, people with international development experience and uh, nonprofit management experience that really allowed us to do best-in-class giving um, mm-hmm. at the corporate level, which was really, really important. And of course, we've had new leadership. You know, our founder has moved on. We've, we have a new CEO. We have new ownership. And I think something we're incredibly proud of over that time frame is that we have been able to give 100 million pairs of shoes to people in need. That's amazing. Yeah, a really special moment for the company and really for our consumer base, right? The, the customers that choose Tom's are the ones that made that happen. Uh, We facilitated it, certainly. We made sure that all those shoes got to people in need, but people who chose to purchase Tom's and be part of the Tom's community were the ones that really made that happen. Mm, I remember standing in a store in Sydney and I saw this pair of Tom's and I was like, oh, these are cool shoes. I like them. And then what I remember was 
the one for one concept. And I was like, oh, well, I'm definitely going to buy them then. You know what I mean? Like it was actually part of the decision-making process for me. Um, and I guess I'm curious to know, you mentioned that you've added more one-for-ones to your giving model. Yeah. Um, you've recently stopped that one-for-one shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, what's what's replaced it? And secondly, was there any concern around the, the sort of ceasing of that model? So over the last two years, um, you know, we were in this place of celebrating 100 million pairs and sort of consuming the world changes around us and um, dipping our toe into things that were not one-for-one giving, that we were really evolving our focus to an impact strategy and took the really bold move to move away from one-for-one shoe giving toward a model of one-third of profits for grassroots goods. We are not changing the world but we're at the feet of people who are. That's why we give one-third of our profits, investing in people building equity at the grassroots level. Because we believe the grass is greener where you water it. And with every pair, you're helping to grow the good. So it was a really big, scary moment, um, Mm -hmm. but one that we had really thought through. Uh, and so first first and most importantly, one-third of profits for grassroots good. What the heck does that mean, right? That's a mm. few more words than one for one. So one-third of profits is the first part. That's a pretty substantial amount of what we make as a company. It's a commitment that we've made over the long term, and it really is already still aligned with how much we were spending when we were giving shoes one for one. So it's still very consistent with the model. That's an important thing to the consumer. We want to be transparent about that. And then the grassroots good piece is really about working with organizations that are addressing the challenges of creating equity in the world on the ground. So they're working in local communities. We're working with uh, those leaders in the communities and the organizations that are truly, one, understand those community needs, and two, are very focused on supporting the members in that community Why are we doing that? To create more equity in the world. So creating equity in mental health, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically help-seeking behaviors, in creating access to opportunities, specifically in education and in decent work, and in supporting uh, our efforts here in the United States to end gun violence, specifically Mm -hmm. interventions and prevention. Areas that we could build either had credibility or could build credibility quite quickly. So those were all really important to us as we thought about those. Where were we going to go next with this idea? Yeah, it is a slightly more complicated concept than a one-for-one, right? It is. You see one-for-one, you go, oh, I buy a pair of shoes, somebody else gets a pair of shoes who's in need. Right. Was there any moments where you thought, oh, I'm concerned that loyal brand buyers might go, oh, I don't quite get this, or were you just completely confident and you thought, no, we're going to get them on board from from the beginning kind of thing. You know, Whitney, I know you can't see my smile on a podcast, <laughs> but I have to tell you, like, there were so many nights I laid in bed going, what have I done? Like, what are we, <laughs> is this okay? Are we doing the right thing, right? You're right. Um, because it, it is, it's a it's a big shift. It's a big um, leap of faith. But But we did our homework, right? We did the research. We wanted to understand 
What were the issues facing the world today and how could we contribute to those? And we felt really proud of giving 100 million pairs of shoes, but we also felt like we have an opportunity to pioneer again. And we did. We trusted that the consumer would understand it, be inspired by it, and want to be a part of it. And so uh, that was all very scary, absolutely, (laughs) every day. Um, When we did roll it out this over the spring, we were ready to answer that question. Are you crazy for walking away from one for one? How could you do that? We never got that question. Really? We didn't get that question one time. I think people really understood that it was time for us to pioneer again. So we were really proud of that. Um, You mentioned that there's no doubt the last few years the world has completely changed. How do you think the Tom's consumer has changed over time? Um, The Tom's consumer has changed over time. And I think really consumers have changed, right? Mm -hmm. They are more savvy than ever. They understand the issues facing their local communities and care deeply about them. They are always researching who they're buying from and they very much vote with their wallets. Mm. So the bar has really been raised for organizations trying to create social impact, uh, and we've got to keep up. And Mm. so you want to try to make progress, not have perfection. Yeah, I like that, progress, not perfection. I think a lot of organizations can get caught in the perfection circle. You know, they get kind of locked in this mire of analysis. Absolutely, 100%. So, Amy, given that you've taken on this very bold strategic move, what are you hoping that the company Tom's looks like in, let's say, five-year time frame? That's that's a pretty decent amount of time. That is. It feels like a really long time, right, in the world we live in today. Mm, Yeah, a lot can happen in five years because COVID was only two years ago. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I certainly hope that, you know, every person on the globe has a pair of Tom's in their closet because the more people that become part of the Tom's community, the more we can give. Um, on the impact side, I hope that we are able to really create some true impact. You know, we, we talk about going beyond the check. What other ways can we help these often under-resourced, marginalized communities bring their vision to life for what they know their communities need? And so I would love in five years, one, I would love, like I said, everyone have a pair of Toms. <laughs> Two, that more and more companies are working in this way, mm-hmm. uh, that we can't just rely on government, we can't just rely on nonprofits, that we have to have this larger ecosystem of engagement. And so if that ecosystem was healthy and vibrant, I, I would feel, one, incredibly proud, but two, very satisfied by the big, bold step we took to walk away from or move away from our one-for-one model. Amy Smith, thanks for joining the program. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. So what's in a brand? Why do we love them? And why do some brands instill an almost religious loyalty in their customers? For more on this, I spoke to author of the book Cult Status, Tim Duggan, and KPMG partner and head of brand strategy, Sadeep Gohill. Tim Duggan, Sadeep Gohill, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Whitney. 
Tim, I'll start with you. In your book, Cult Status, you say brands with impact have a unifying message and usually lead from the middle. What do you mean by that? And can you give us some real world examples? Yeah. So in my book, I define a business with cult status as one that has a really strong or passionate community around it who really identify with what a business does. And I spent the last few years studying some of these businesses and trying to figure out, was there almost a special source? And one of the things that I noticed was that a lot of these businesses that had these really passionate communities around them, um, they had a leadership style that I termed lead from the middle. Mm -hmm. And what this meant was that instead of leading from the front, which is you know a pretty militaristic way of letting people follow behind you, or leading from behind, like you're a shepherd and they're a flock and mm -hmm. you just follow behind them. Mm -hmm. There was this concept called lead from the middle, which was if you set a really strong vision and purpose of what you're doing and communicate that to your team, then your team can help you get there, sometimes going down little side routes in order to, mm -hmm. um, to get to the ultimate goal. Leading from the middle is a way better way of businesses uh, today cultivating really strong community around them. So how difficult is it though to get a team to kind of see that vision and to help you enact that vision from the middle? The hardest part of that is knowing what your purpose is yourself. Because mm -hmm. if the leaders and the founders and the exec team is not super clear around what their purpose is and what their mission is, then you can't lead from the middle and you can't explain to other people what your purpose is and expect that they're going to follow along behind you. Um, and a really great example is who gives a crap, the, mm -hmm, the toilet paper mm -hmm, company, mm -hmm. probably the best example in Australia of a company that's balancing profit and purpose together. Over the years when they've been building that, and I've um, known Simon, one of the co-founders, um, since the very beginning when they kind of kicked it off, they were super clear on what their purpose was from the start. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was that when they had stuff-ups, when their first shipment of toilet paper arrived and it wasn't properly perforated, meaning that you needed a knife to cut each toilet roll um, <laughs> up to make them into individual squares. It meant that their customers said, well, you know what, I believe so strongly in what you're doing that I don't care that this is a really crap product right now, pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to stick with you. And because everyone knew what their why was, mm -hmm. it meant that they were able to kind of ride some of those ups and downs. Mm. Sadeep, I want to bring you into the conversation now. How important, because who gives a crap is an incredible name. I mean, it just kind of stops you in your tracks, right? How important is a name when you're launching a product? It's either everything or nothing, I guess. <laughs> so not the best answer in the world. I think it's, it's, I think it's interesting because I think sometimes, you know, the name just kind of tells you everything yeah. about the brand. The name's kind of where the product leads from. But in other cases, it's something that means absolutely nothing at the beginning, an empty vessel almost, mm. and then it becomes contingent on the organisation to fill it. So you know, Google and a lot of the other yeah. um, internet companies that, that we're all so familiar with now, um, when they first came about, we didn't even know what they did, let alone what the name meant. So I think you can go either way. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, increasingly, if you can get both going, then that, that's quite an interesting position to be in. Mm. Tim, what's your view on that? I lean towards a brand name generally means nothing to anyone. <laughs> It's, it's what you project into that brand name. Yeah. Um, and that's why, as Sadiq mentioned, 
There's just so many examples of words that are completely made up that don't mean anything until they're imbued with a meaning. For this episode, I recently spoke to Amy Smith, the Chief Strategy and Impact Officer at Tom's Shoes, famous for pioneering the one-for-one model. They recently moved away from that model, and so far she said it's been positive. How difficult do you think it is for established brands to change their brand tactics? I think brands should change their brand tactics. Mm -hmm. If you didn't evolve along with the times, you're just going to be left behind. Like Kodak, for example. Definitely, mm. definitely. There's the, 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 our, our world is littered with brands that didn't evolve um, along with the times. Mm. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going to say, Tim. I think it's that evolution of how you do something versus why you do something. The why is important, but mm. how you do it needs to change and evolve because I think the world's got so complicated now that if you just kept on doing the same thing again and again, you would be old-fashioned and out of date before you could even finish a sentence. Sadeep, there are brands that have become almost synonymous with the actual item they produce. A good example is, say, Kleenex, which many people would say instead of tissue. Is that cult status or is that something else, do you think? Uh, It's an interesting one, Whitney. I actually think, uh, I'm not sure that they're quite cult status. Mm -hmm. I actually prefer the description of eponymous brands, Mm -hmm. you know, so the brand that basically ends up becoming the name for the category. Mm -hmm. I think from a cult status perspective, it's a different metric, perhaps. If you think back to some of those brands like, you know, Kleenex and Sellotape and Dulux and Hoover, et cetera, Mm. they've also been pioneers in their category. Mm. And so it's less, I think, about what they stand for and more what that product delivers, Mm. which I think is another really interesting kind of aspect of brands. Um, But I think there are other brands which attract kind of that religious devotion from customers, which I think leans more on that authenticity side of things. It's because they're Mm. so good at what they do. They're so obsessive about detail. They're so obsessive about how they create their product or how they craft their story that it's easy to understand how customers can get totally swept up. Do you have any examples of of what you're talking about? Um, I, I remember when I lived in Japan for a little while and in Tokyo, people were absolutely devoted to Louis Vuitton as a brand. And what they loved about it was that artisan attention to detail and they would you know do things like count the number of stitches to make sure that they'd got mm. a perfect piece of Louis Vuitton. Yeah and Louis Vuitton also has a long heritage as well I would imagine that would be an important element of that. Yeah absolutely they're the people that started a lot of the trends which mm. other companies and brands have come after and, and tried to emulate. Mm. Tim what's your view on that? I think it's important to recognize that a religious devotion doesn't happen accidentally. Mm. It, it actually, there's a there's process and there's thought and there is real intention behind that. Quality is probably the most important thing, but then once you've got that quality product, you then need to have all these other things around it that make it a cult status brand. So things like transparency, you need to be really honest and open with your customers there is often a kind of charisma from the founder or the leaders or the exec team or the management um, around that company that people are drawn to. And there's an alignment of values in that people can either project themselves uh, or see themselves projected um, in some of the values that the company represents. And when that resonates, that is when you get a religious devotion to something. How do you think consumers have changed during the pandemic? I think consumers' worlds have shrunk 
um, and the relationships with brands, therefore, have become a lot more intimate. You kind of grabbed onto brands that you really loved. So whether that was your local restaurant that you wanted to order from or your favourite face cream that you wanted to kind of put on when you you know wanted a Saturday night in. You mean every Saturday night in? <laughs> yeah, yes, and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Um, and so coming out of the pandemic, I actually think that our depth of love and some of that religious devotion for these brands, I think it's actually only going to be even stronger. Um, and interestingly, I wrote my book, Cult Status, um, in the two years leading up to COVID hitting in um, 2020. And one of the things that I was most concerned with was, oh God, all these businesses that I wrote about were about to go under because we're going to have you know the, this big global pandemic happening. Mm-hmm. And the opposite thing happened. All these businesses that had really strong communities around them, they got stronger in tough times. So if anything, the, the pandemic has, has kind of shown that you really need a strong community around your brand to believe in what you're doing mm-hmm. to help you get through to the other side. Mm. Sadeep, what's your view? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I was going to say, I think it's made consumers appreciate the things that we've taken for granted much more. And so the idea of kind of locally sourced and locally produced and businesses that contribute in a positive manner to my community have become all of a sudden I think more important, particularly from a retail perspective. Um, and then I think the other thing that's been interesting is the dichotomy that has developed around value. So, you know, people lining up for toilet paper and all that kind of stuff. I think it's kind of meant people have expanded their definition of what is value, what does it mean for me? And as Tim was saying, it really kind of personalised um, people's experiences with buying products and services. Mm. Um, it's worth pointing out that COVID has been really hard for a lot of people and really surprisingly good for a bunch of other people. Um, And the best metaphor that I've heard about COVID is that it's been a giant game of snakes and ladders. Mm. And Mm. some people have climbed up the ladder and other people have just fallen down the snakes. Um, And that could have been, you know, through no fault of their own. And I think it's just really important to kind of keep in mind that therefore for some consumers, it's been a, a good experience of the past 18 months and for others, it's been hell. We're nearly to time. So before we go, I just want to, I'm going to go to you first, Sadiq. What's your favourite brand and why? Um, my favourite brand, uh, easy question to answer, is Nike. <laughs> I was thinking because you, <laughs> you collect shoes, don't I, you? Uh, well, I used to. Okay. Oh, really? You've given it up? Well, you can never give it up, to be honest. But, you know, <laughs> I collect less than I had before. But uh, it's one of those brands which I've admired since I was a kid f- for three very simple things. One, they're so true to who they are and what they stand for. Um, you know, what they used to be back in the 70s when they first started is, is mm-hmm. kind of very true to what they are at the moment. Um, they're massively innovative. And of all of the uh, brands I've ever looked at, it is so unrelenting in its pursuit of kind of nonstop evolution. They have a, a saying, an internal kind of saying, which is there is no finish line. And you can see that it comes to life in everything that they do. There is no finish line, which I just think is an awesome internal manifesto to have. Tim, your favourite brand and why? Also a clothing brand and has actually been called the new Nike. They have sold more than one million shoes in their first 12 months. And they are the shoe brand called Allbirds. So they call themselves the the most comfortable shoe in the world. And I wear them almost every day and they are super, super (laughs) comfortable. But the reason why I really love them and why I think that I have become kind of a, a raving um, fan for them is that they are one of the most sustainable shoe companies in the world. And 
I think for me, my favourite brand is something that really aligns with um, who I am as a person and with my kind of personal purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and when I see um, a brand like Allbirds, I become a um, huge fan of it and I hope that they continue to put out lots of products and they turn <laughs> into the next Nike over the next 30 years. Sadiq Gohill, Tim Duggan, thanks for joining the program. Thanks, Whitney. Thanks very much for having me. vegan Australian and one Texan fine dining chef, add some passion, focus and a desire to help the environment by lowering people's meat consumption. And what do you have? The answer is the mushroom-based meat alternative company, Fable. To find out more about the Fable story, I caught up with the company's founders, Michael Fox and Jim Fuller. Michael Fox, Jim Fuller, welcome to the program. Hi, Whitney. Thanks for having us, Whitney. So, Michael, in a nutshell, what is Fable? At Fable, our mission is to help end industrial animal agriculture, and we do that by making delicious meaty food out of mushrooms. Well, Michael, that was quite the nutshell answer. <laughs> I can extrapolate if you like. <laughs> Do you care to just give us a little bit more detail on that? Yeah, so we kind of operate in that meat alternative space. So we want to help people to reduce their meat consumption, um, but we know people love the taste and texture of meat. Most people get the reasons why they should reduce their meat consumption and, you know, for for health reasons, environmental reasons and ethical reasons. But, yeah, it's difficult to fully give up or, or even reduce meat. Um, so we make products that have the taste and texture of meat, um, but we make them out of non-animal ingredients and, for us, a particular focus on mushrooms. What What's behind the name, Fable? Yeah, so... The Oxford Dictionary defines a fable as a short story, usually with animals as characters conveying a moral. Um, and it, it does sort of fit nicely with the idea of helping to end industrial animal agriculture and saving animals. Um, we also loved the thought around, picture the sort of images in some of those books of like walking through the enchanted forest and there's mushrooms uh, there mm -hmm. on the ground as you're going through the forest. And yeah, so it kind of, it kind of, just hit a whole bunch of uh, really, really nice spots for us when we, when we uh, came up the name and came up with the name, yeah, in a whole bunch of different directions. Um, so it just, it really felt right. So Michael, you're vegan, which makes sense. But Jim, my understanding is that you aren't, and that you hail from Texas, where slow cooking and barbecue is a big thing. So why were you so keen to join Michael in starting Fable? Uh, well, that all is true. I do have a, a bit of a background in fine dining and chemical engineering, but taking a break from all of that, I started a job on a mushroom farm and I kind of fell down the rabbit hole, so to speak, <laughs> where I saw one of the most efficient agricultural crops and that was in the North Bay area of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So uh, it rained nine months out of the year and mushrooms grew in the wild. I just kind of took on the hobby of mushroom hunting. Did you ever, when you were out mushroom hunting, did you ever think, oh, I'm not sure if I should eat that one? 
<laughs> well, that's kind of like the thrill of it, right? Like, all right, okay. <laughs> you're on the hunt, and you could be literally looking for mushrooms that are, you know, hundreds of dollars a kilo, or even in some cases, thousands of dollars a kilo. So massive value. But then you're dealing with things that are highly medicinal or toxic. You know, mm. you, they can cure you or kill you. So many interesting things. So, like I, like I said, I fell down the rabbit hole, and I had my cosmic aha there that I was going to deal with mushrooms for the rest of my life. Now that creates a bit of a, a cognitive dissonance within someone who who lives, you know, that cultural Texan lifestyle mm. and barbecues on the weekend and eats steak. So I actually chose to go vegan four years ago. So I, I did it for a month. And at the end of a month, I said, geez, I'm never going to do this again because <laughs> the first two weeks I felt terrible. Right. Yeah. But then the next two weeks, I, I feel great. So me and a friend went from one month to six months. That was great. Then we decided six months to a year, and we we're going to see that out. But in month eight, I went back to Texas. And I was amongst everything that I grew up with. And there was like a, a massive emotional connection to family and friends and ritual and culture around not, not just meat, but around barbecue, the whole culture behind it. So I cheated for a month while I was there, but I still had made a promise to do the year. So I came back here and saw the year out. But I knew that I needed to create something that could fill not just the whole, but all of those things that were the experience around food. And by the end of it, I decided, okay, well, I am no longer a vegan, but I am what you would now call a flexitarian, making different choices around oh, that's my food. But term. I was very passionate about being able to help other people to reduce their resource-intense diets. Mm. That's pretty much why I was really happy to take on industrial meat agriculture with Michael. Mm. <laughs> so the philosophy, you just touched on that, Jim, the philosophy of fable. For you, Michael, what does the brand stand for? Yeah, so as you touched on before, I'm vegan. Um, yeah, I went, I went vegetarian six years ago. For me, kind of a mix of uh, health, environmental and ethical reasons. And, and I went uh, vegan earlier this year. Um, and uh, I'd previously done a fashion technology business, Shoes of Prey, um, and I've, I finished up with that three years ago, took six months off uh, thinking about what I wanted to do next, uh, and I got pretty passionate about the idea of wanting to help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture for all those same reasons that, uh, that I'm vegan. So I started exploring mushrooms, and that's uh, how I got introduced to Jim. I had about five different people tell me, oh, you've got to meet Jim Fuller, you've got to meet Jim Fuller. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, Jim and I met um, and yeah, realised we had good complementary skill sets. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but for what the Fable brand stands for, mm. um, yeah, it stands for helping people to reduce their meat consumption, and we have a yeah sort of a whole food-based, all-natural ingredient deck. We don't use anything artificial. Um, we really focus on making an amazing, natural, healthy meat alternative. Jim, you mentioned that there was no more fine dining. However, you do have a big fan in Heston Blumenthal who is Mr. Fine Dining and Mr. Inventive when it comes to food. Hi, I'm Heston Blumenthal. Now, you guys might know me in Australia from MasterChef. Why is the Fable Patty so special? 100% natural. It's juicy. It's satisfying. It's full of umami. These I mean, that's quite an incredible endorsement. Can you just tell me how that happened? Well, back in the days, whenever I was a fine dining chef, um, at the same time, I was a chemical engineering student. Mm. And my, my head chef recognized how my scientific approach was a little bit different. And he, ha he handed me a book called On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. And it's the science and lore of the kitchen. And it introduced me to Chef Heston Blumenthal. So it just so happened that 20 years later, I was a 
what some would call an expert in mushrooms, and he was out looking for one. Um, it just so happened that I got the ability to go actually be Heston's mushroom expert for a day in Thailand. So I was lucky enough to go over there and uh, regale him with some tales of my mushroom world and all of those things. And I took him some very interesting stuff that I had found in, in Australia called cordyceps. Now, cordyceps is a highly medicinal fungus that has a really long history in traditional Chinese medicine. And it's like the most valuable ingredient in TCM. The Chinese ones were 200,000 US dollars a kilo. Oh my God. I didn't get to the part where I told them that it, it's very rare, but uh, you can overdose on them. It's so rare because they're so expensive, you, no one ever eats that much. But he ate a whole stick before I could really, <laughs> really give him that caveat. And it just so happened that he was affected. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get to lead him around very long on these mushroom farms before he was literally walking backwards <laughs> and uh, a bit chattery and uh, lost the ability to speak. He was delivered away in the back of a van, you know, unable to speak or move. I thought I had just killed my hero. <laughs> um, I was literally packing my bags from Thailand thinking I'm going straight to jail. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> Um, but, you know, none of that happened. I actually got a phone call. It was Heston. He had regained the ability to speak, which was great. And he's like, look, I realize, you know, it, it's not you. It's, it was me. I just got too excited and consumed. And I was like, great. I'm glad that, you're, that you don't blame me. And, and I had brought you a gift. Um, here's 50 more grams of these things. Do you want them? <laughs> and uh, I guess it was just sort of a, an endearing thing because it, it opened up the, the, the path of communication between us. Mm -hmm. And then several months later, I called him up and said, hey, we're starting a business. Would you like to hear more about it? And he said, yeah, 100%. The next time I got to catch up with him, I showed him our first version of Fable and it, he ended up becoming our, our first fine dining customer. And, you know, it just kind of rolled out from there. Our relationship is great. Fortunately, I didn't kill him. Uh, and that only got stronger because of it. <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot of people happy that you didn't kill Heston Blumenthal. Mm. <laughs> And you're an Australian brand. You're available in the UK, Singapore, and about to launch in the US. That's very exciting. I would imagine um, it would also bring some challenges with it. How how are you kind of coping with the challenges? Where we are specifically having challenges um, is, yeah, at the moment, uh, global logistics are a mm -hmm. real, real issue. So COVID's caused all sorts of issues with global supply chains and global shipping, um, and that's hitting us uh, fairly hard. Um, we work with co-manufacturing partners uh, based in Malaysia, mm -hmm. um, but then, yeah, it means we've got to ship our product around. So we've held a, held a lot of stock in Australia, and that's helped us weather this logistic storm in Australia. Um, but, yeah, we've just launched in the UK last month. We launched with a um, large quick service restaurant chain called Leon, who have about 70 stores. Mm -hmm. um, and we were launching a 10-week promotion, a, a Fable steak wrap on their menu. Um, and it sold out in three and a half weeks, um, which was great from a sales perspective. But then we didn't have additional stock there in the UK. So um, and so now we need to build that buffer in the UK. We've got some more partners who want to launch in um, Veganuary uh, in January. Mm -hmm. um, but it's going to be a real challenge for us to get stock to the UK in time. Yeah, I mean, you're not the only ones facing that. I was speaking to Amy Smith, the global strategy officer from Tom's Shoes this morning for this episode. And she mentioned that one of their challenges is 
you know, global supply chain. And so so it is actually one of those fallouts from COVID that is really affecting uh, a lot of businesses. Um, Jim, I'm wondering, given that you're breaking into the US, are you looking forward to introducing some of your Texan family to Fable? Absolutely. Yeah, they're all uh, chomping at the bit for it. And I mean, I was <laughs> raised up in fine dining there in San Antonio in Texas. All the chefs that I was working with at the time have gone on to be restaurant owners and they're all just waiting to like support us and take us big. That's fantastic. I'm I'm super excited. That's great. Now, I can't let either of you go without asking you this question. Michael, I'm going to ask you first, what is your favorite mushroom and why? Oh, I would have to say the cordyceps mushroom. I boil some up in a chai tea every morning and yeah, it really gives me an awesome kind of energy kick to start the day. Um, plus it's just got a crazy life cycle story. Basically it takes over and invades the body of insects uh, and then ends up consuming the insect and growing out of the head of the insect. And it's just a, it's just a crazy weird zombie mushroom. Sounds delicious. <laughs> and amazing nutritional benefits. So, yeah, that, that one wins it for me. Yeah. All right, Jim, as a chef, what's your favourite mushroom and why? Yeah, this is like choosing a favourite child. Mm, um, I, I'm sure it's a Sophie's <laughs> choice for you, but, you know. So the, I have to break it down as the cultivated variety and the wild variety. So the cultivated one, shiitake. It's meaty. And, and delicious. It's got all those umamis, a really high in glutamic acid, so, you know. And then uh, the wild ones is either chanterelle or morel. And I think I can have both because chanterelles grow in the fall and morels grow in the spring. So I, I gotta give me three. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll let you have those three. Michael Fox, Jim Fuller, it's been great having you on the program. Thank you very much. Thanks, Whitney, cheers. Well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the program. To find out more about Tim Duggan's book, Cult Status, check out the show notes. Until next time, thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 